broke the ship. You broke the bloody ship. Welcome to Hate Guys Podcast. I'm Rob, this is Liam, and this week we watched Galaxy Quest, a film released in 1999 starring Tim Allen, Sigourney Weaver, Alan Rickman, and a whole host of now-famous faces. This heartfelt tribute to the Star Trek franchise and also the passion of fandom, the non-toxic kind. It's a film hailed as a chillingly realistic documentary by George Takai. Galaxy Quest takes us on an adventure through the far reaches of space for a bunch of washed up actors holding on to what made them famous and thrust into a life or death situation to save a race of peace loving aliens versus a giant lizard grasshopper pirate thing. I have questions around space condoms and beryllium spheres, but first let's introduce my co-host and hear his thoughts on this nearly five-star movie. Hey Liam, how are you doing? Yeah, all good, all good. I'd say yeah, nearly five stars is probably bang on. <laughs> and a big part of that is is the cast. Yeah. It's 100% the cast. I mean, this is a brilliantly written, like tonally, I would say borderline perfect movie. But what ultimately makes it is the cast. I mean, I don't want to say it's like the greatest cast of all time because that'd be ridiculous. But it's in the conversation for the most perfect cast. Like it is one of those films when you go through the whole thing and you're like, I wouldn't recast anyone. The only one I was really thinking would maybe be Daryl Mitchell as Tommy Weather. I was like, oh, you know, back in 1999, could you throw like a Chris Tucker in there? Yeah. I, I'm like, that wouldn't work. He's too no. famous. The whole I think point Dar- is Mitchell that he... Is, yeah. Oh, he's great in it. Like it was only, you know, I was looking at it and, you know, when you look at the cast now, he's the one where maybe, like, I got to be honest, I didn't know what he was doing. I couldn't name another thing he was in. He's uh, currently like, in NCI, or well, he was in NCIS New Orleans. Sorry to interrupt. But he no, had no, no. an accident, bless him. Uh, he's, he's now... Uh, in a wheelchair so all really? his yeah so all his uh what he does now is is from a wheelchair he had a car i think it was a car accident mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. and yeah he uh he damaged his spine so uh jesus christ that's horrible yeah. that's oh, a fucking horrible way to start the goddamn podcast i do apologize and i'm you like oh, i don't think he should and, and just to be clear i wasn't saying he shouldn't be in the movie it was just that was my initial thought was that oh maybe you could replace him with someone more famous but I was like, no, I don't think that works for the character. Like his role is always played by someone who isn't that famous. Yeah. You know, that because, of course, everything about that this film, you immediately relate to the world of Star Trek, which is the whole shtick of this film. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you uh, said, oh, sorry. Karen. No, I said, you said the cast. I, said, I think I said it in my intro as well about it's a fantastic cast. I mean, mm-hmm. off the bat, you've got Tim Allen, Sigourney Weaver, Alan Rickman. And then you go to... What I said, a whole host of now famous faces. Sam Rockwell, Tony Shalhoub. Justin... Is that how you pronounce his name, just to be sure? Tony Shalhoub. Shalhoub, yeah. Yeah, Shalhoub. Yeah, yeah. I wasn't sure. I wasn't sure how to pronounce it. Okay. I was like, I, I, I prefer you to merge it first or at least get it right. <laughs> I, I'm basically, I'm just going to copy you and say Tony yeah. Shalhoub for the rest of the podcast. Uh, you had uh, Justin Long. Sam Lloyd, who, was, uh, who I always remembered as uh, Ted from Scrubs. Rain yeah. Wilson is in this for Christ's sake. And then the guy that played... Squeak <coughs> Scolari. Yeah. The guy that played Saris. Yeah, Squeak is in this from Basketball. Yeah. The guy that played Saris will Robin know Sachs. him. Yeah, will know him. Not a lot mm-hmm. of people will, but Robin Sachs is famous for basically playing va- bad guys in any video game ever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Tons yeah, and like, tons of voice work, he yeah. Is a, yeah he's, he's a predominant voice actor. But <clears throat> and Enrico Colantoni as well mm-hmm. he, was, uh, he was the father in veronica mars he was in just a bunch of yeah it's it's a good mix but it really is it's it's the core cast which steal the show. It's, 
You did say Sam Rock. You, and of course, you have to say Sam Rock. Well, I mean, because obviously he had been in Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles before this, and he had been in a host of other films. Yeah. But I think famously, we both have a bit of a man crush on um, Sam Rockwell. Yep. But, you know, I think that started, for me at least, with this movie. I'm not sure if I knew him really before Galaxy Quest. And this kind of kicked him off into that, you know, it was like kind of mid-2000s when he had a really big point in his career and he was I don't want to say kind of leading man roles but it was borderline that and I think it probably all started here because I don't want to say he steals the show because this is a movie where you could make the argument that everyone steals the show (laughs) everyone is fucking slaying in this film but even even amidst a film where everybody is killing it you could make the argument that Sam Rockwell maybe does sneak in although I did want to mention another and it was important that you got the name I do have a Tony Shalhoub um yeah. story and it is it is one of my um holiday stories I, I was hope- in I was in New York and I accidentally stepped on somebody's very small dog and I looked up and it was Tony Shalhoub and I was just like and I couldn't place him so I had like the strangest look on my face of oh I've stepped on your dog and oh I know you but I can't remember from what and I was like racking my brain for ages and do you know what I came up with I didn't come up with Galaxy Quest I came up with the dude from Men in Black who sold, like, you know, oh, the guy in the shop. He shot off all the time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I was, I was, like, honestly, it ruined my walk around Central Park because I spent the whole time, I'm like, who the fuck is this guy? Because, like, I didn't know his name. And I was just like, I'm just trying to, you know when you can see someone's face? Yeah. And you can see them in the movie, but you can't fill out the picture of the rest of the movie? Yeah. And I was just driving up the wall. So you know I eventually... You do you know why you couldn't place him? Why is that? It's because he didn't do his... And I'm I'm sorry I'm I'm I I didn't say this I read it online he didn't do his Asian eyes squint because apparently in this film he's playing the Asian character Fred yeah Kwan. he's playing Chen yeah his name is Fred Kwan his Kwan, character's sorry, yeah. name is Tech Sergeant Chen and every time <laughs> yeah. you see him oh he smiles he does his Asian eyes squint like when they do that introduction at the end of the film when they've done the Galaxy yeah. Quest again he does his his squint to show that apparently he's playing an Asian character. Is I mean, that what he's actually as, going for? I believe so. It's oh almost days. as bad as another film we'll do on this podcast at some point. Oh, Short Circuit, where oh, Fisher yeah, yeah, Stevens yeah. is doing full-blown Indian. Yeah, but I I'm guess this is this is this, this is mu- this is much more acceptable, I, I guess, because it's it's sending that up, isn't it? Yeah. Like you know, it, it's him. Like, oh, I'm supposed to be Asian, although, like you said. That only half works because his name is Fred Kwan, yeah. which is suggesting that he's actually supposed to be Asian in real, like his act, the actor is supposed to be Asian, yeah. not just the character. Which it's, it's again, kind of like it's kind of like a take on that uh, David Carradine series, isn't it? Uh, Kung Fu, where yeah, apparently yeah, yeah. He, he's meant to be Asian. Going back to Fred Kwan, because they don't actually say it, but he's always eating. He's forever stoned, isn't he? He looks stoned. He always like, looks stoned. To the point where he's the only one happy that they wrapped him in a space condom and sent him through space. Yeah, uh, it was weird because I don't know where he's getting this weed from. I'm like, is he just supposed to be really... Ch- See, we could spend the whole podcast on this guy now. Is he an Asian? Is he actually supposed to be Asian playing Asian? Or is he aware that he was playing Asian but not Asian, but he's also stoned? I- I'm not sure if we're going to get to the bottom of any of this. And the fact he's fucking alien. And he also fucks an alien. And that is the thing, like, a, a big part of this question is, because at the start, of course, it's it's a parody. Then it becomes an homage. And eventually what it becomes is a, is a character piece. Because, you know, you mentioned at the top that, um, who who's the member of the ca- uh, Star Trek cast who said it was almost like a documentary? 
George Takai. George Takai. And eventually, what what it once you get past the fact that it's this kind of parody of Star Trek and this parody of fandom, what it becomes is a character piece because it's basically taking the idea of these perceived human beings and the position they're in, and they're putting it on the screen saying, well, what are these people really like? You know, what's it like to spend time with Nimoy and Shatner, et cetera, et cetera. But then also applying a, a fish out of water scenario. And that's what the story really becomes is like, it, if you were put in this position and you were suddenly shot off into space, how would you react? And he's like, you know, at the one of the spectrum, you've got um, Shalab who's like, like you said, almost stoned. Yeah. But I'm like, I would surely be more in line with Rockwell. I would just be screaming, I think, all the fucking time. Which was unscripted. Oh, yeah, yeah. You can see Sigourney Weaver's reaction to it. shits herself. <laughs> do, you, do you guys want to have a tour of the ship? And he just screams. <laughs> I love the fact that he keeps it up as well. Like yeah. Again, it's those two characters when they land on the alien planet. And he just opens it. He's like, don't open that. It's an alien planet. Is there air? You don't know. It's like, come on. Like Somebody needs to be, you know, have a bit of common sense. Yes. He's maybe turned up to a hundred, but Jesus Christ, I'm more in line with Sam Rockwell's character. He has he has one of the best lines as well when they're trying to teach him uh, when they're trying to talk Jason through killing the rock monster, oh, and he goes, then. "Can you construct one well, a rudimentary lathe? <laughs> yeah, can you form some sort of rudimentary lathe? Look what they, that that scene is absolutely baller, like back to friends, yeah. but." The only thing is, my first instinct was to think, okay, what would I do if I was in that position? But the reality is, what would it be like if you took today's actors and put them in that actual situation, i.e., you know, their kind of core roles, what they're famous for, and then suddenly them being swept off into space? And I immediately thought of Tom Cruise. Like, if aliens came down and it was the same situation and they needed a dude who was like the ultimate action spy for an adventure in space... And they picked up Tom Cruise based on what they saw in movies. I reckon he'd fucking slay it. He would just go up and he would just be like, yeah, I could basically do all that stuff. Because you can actually do all that stuff. The first thing he would be doing is saying that Scientology was right. Oh, yeah, 100%. Well, that's the other thing. He he wouldn't even be surprised they're there. He's waiting for it, yeah. Yeah, he'd be the Tony Schlaub. He'd be like, oh, yeah, yeah, I knew this was coming. This is why I did all that training. It wasn't for the fucking movies. It was when the aliens showed up. Jesus Christ! I mean, I, I I can't get on board with Tom Cruise saving the world. So <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but coming back to the cast, I mean, we mentioned the fact that you know the reason this works is because it well one like I said the tone is correct. You know the fact that it it it, it gets you in the door with with a parody, but then it becomes homage, etc. But the the important thing is that it gets both fandom and gets the source material. Like yeah. if the, if you know. If anyone can smell out a fake or sniff out a fake, whichever way you want to put it, it's going to be fans. If this doesn't work or isn't a true representation of that, you know, of fandom in 1999, it just gets blown out of the water immediately. And I'm not that hardcore at all, but you get the sense that it probably works. I guess the only issue with it is because of what it's going after. Is that is was this film made twenty years too early? Like this yeah. film was released, or maybe maybe even ten. Like the, the point is, like this this film was like a solid hit. I think it made like ninety million. But the whole fandom thing back in nineteen ninety nine was still this like corner of the internet. The internet hadn't really kind of taken off in a huge way yet, and fandom was still what most people perceived as like conventions and sweaty geeks and stuff like yeah. that. 
Whereas now, of course, everybody thinks of Comic-Con and all this and the stars showing up and fucking Chris Evans and, you know, the biggest stars in the world showing up for screaming fans in halls full of thousands upon thousands of people. It's like if this film was released in 2015, say, like, does this film do much better? I was like, I think it does. Yeah, I honestly think it does. But it also goes down a different route then, doesn't it? Because then you have more of the Internet and probably, as I've already said, the toxic side of it. Now, an argument could be made that the way Justin Long and all act about the ship, like mm-hmm. their questions about the ship and stuff and saying, well, you've made a goof on the show. That could be lamented as toxic, I guess, at some point, but not think so. But not what we know is toxic fandom. I mean, Snyder, Snyderverse, okay, save the Snyder cut and all that shit. That comes yeah. to light at the moment for toxic fandom. That's, that's insane. But I think if it's made now, like you said, 2015, I think it, it goes down a darker path. I don't think it needs to, like, the problem is when you talk about toxic fandom, it, it's all about scale. Like, you don't think toxic fandom didn't exist in the 80s and 90s? Of course well, I think it, it did. did. I think it did. But I, If anything, I, I think it probably, like, the only difference is now everyone's got a bigger voice. And because fandoms are a part of popular culture now, the big thing is that people listen to it. This I, I always think this comes back to Mass Effect. And when they changed the ending to Mass Effect, I think that was one of those low-key things where... All of a sudden, the internet got a win. These fucking mouthy nerds got a win because they actually got Bioware to change the ending of Mass Effect. And that started this domino effect where suddenly they're like, wait, if we bitch and moan enough, they'll change this to what we want. And then, of course, all of a sudden, because as well, it's not just they they feel empowered by it, but because it became a news story, suddenly... Like papers, magazine papers, geez, I'm so old. Um, web pages, whatever you want to call it. Um, they all start latching onto this because oh, it's a potential another story. And then of course it turns into the Snyderverse thing and stuff like that. But like I, I think you could totally make a film today where it's about the positive side of fandom because let's be clear, most of fandom is positive. It's just the negative side is much louder. I, I you know, I, I think you could fundamentally have a very similar film in 2015. I just think it would be it would be probably an easier sell but that's not really what the film is like i said that that's the trappings for the film that gets you in the door but the reason it works again is the fact that fundamentally it's a character piece and i think the bravest thing it does and i hate to use the term brave and i wish i hadn't now but here we are is the fact that it gives so much screen time screen time to every actor i think it would be very easy to make this another spock and kirk equivalent it was it lazarus and taggart i think their character names are yeah is, is that right whatever or tim allen and um you know tim allen and uh rickman, alan rickman. Just, and alan rickman but instead this movie gives time to every single character and i think it's all the better for it yeah do you know one thing i noticed you we've already said alan rickman now one thing i noticed that i've never noticed previously he never takes his headgear off ever no, even no, when no. he's in his apartment or flat, or whatever you want to call it, mm-hmm. and he's talking to Sigourney Weaver, Gwen DeMarco. Mm-hmm. He never once takes it off. It's genius. It's, yeah, it's throughout the whole film, he leaves that thing on. Well, I, again, I think it kind of comes back to his whole character thing that he's kind of caught between these two worlds. That he begrudges the fact that he still has to play this character, but he knows that this is his career. Like, he's yes, he's in this as well, isn't he? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah he's Sir Alexander Dean. Yeah, yeah. Well, that, that's the thing. Like, you know. This this whole idea, and you do get it. These like classically trained actors who have these famous careers on you know on the stage and stuff, but they are fundamentally famous 
for playing this character in this TV show. And he knows this is what pays the bills. And you can see, like, I know he's moaning about it, but I like the idea that he's quite conflicted about the character, like a love-hate relationship, like he has with the cast. Well, you kind of see that as well. Like the whole cast hating Jason Nesmith mm-hmm. and things like that as well. You kind of see it in the look of uh, the, uh, where they live. You look mm-hmm. at like where Alan Rickman lives. Yeah, some, yeah, yeah. some uh, like gaudy New York, mm-hmm. bloody, I don't know. Uh, Apartments. Yeah, like flea infested apartment. Then you look at like. Uh, Sigourney Weavers is a bit more upmarket. Mm-hmm, it looks mm-hmm. a bit nicer, and then you get to fucking Tim Allen's mansion on the hill mm-hmm, with the mm-hmm. swimming pool. And yeah, th- this is the reason why people hate him because he's he's doing jobs without them and things like that. And but they can't; they have to <clears throat> uh, they have to get this measly living, so they have to follow him. Well, yeah, it, it speaks yeah. to the fact that why they're doing it. It's like, you know, he doesn't necessarily want to be there, but he has to be there because this is fundamentally paying the bills. Whereas Tim Allen's character, he doesn't need to be there because he lives in a giant house in the LA Hills, but he doesn't need money. He needs adu- adulation. And yeah. that's what they provide. And, you know, they keep talking about that, like their different relationships with fandom and stuff. And you can imagine that as as an actor if you're suddenly thrust into this world, you know, it, like this, you know, you could be an actor doing films and, you know, you, it's a paying gig, whatever. You could be doing very well, but you do your job, you, you go on the circuit, you promote the film and then you go home. But then suddenly you get into the world of Marvel or Star Trek and then suddenly you're thrust into this totally different world of fandom. And, it, you know, it, it must be so interesting, like how you deal with it. It was like, I think it was like I saw an interview with Adam Driver. Well, he was very polite about it, but he was like, you know, I went once, you know, to Comic-Con. He's like, that was enough. You know, this, <laughs> this isn't for me. Well, you can imagine other, you know, imagine imagine Robert De Niro at Comic-Con. <laughs> Fuck, it would be a horror <laughs> show. He'd be like, I'm not fucking doing this. Whereas other guys, they would go there. They would see, you can imagine someone like The Rock, the cheering fans, the screaming and stuff. He's like, oh, yeah, yeah. This is, yeah. This is absolutely for me. There's also a bit of a difference, isn't there? Because those, those actors, they would go there. But mm-hmm. they would not then sit at a booth and sign their name for twenty unless they had to, unless yeah, they needed I mean. the money. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So they they wouldn't do that. And that's that's when it gets a bit a bit different then, isn't it? Because as you're signing it, these people you could see it clearly in like Alexander Alexander's face. Every time somebody comes up to him to ask him for uh, an autograph, they do that line. Grab Star's hammer, yeah, yeah, yeah. And he's like like that line is just poison to him now. It's insane. Yeah, yeah. And well, I you, love- you're stuck in this world, and you're constantly being yeah. reminded of it. it. It just, yeah, I, I can imagine that for some people, it must be a bit much to say the least. But if you embrace it, I mean, it must be amazing. Like you, you see these pictures of um, uh, at the moment, like <laughs> the most famous person in the world at the moment, like Brendan Fraser, and yeah. you hear all these like lovely stories about people who go to conventions. And he goes that extra mile, and you have that mindset. It must be amazing to be like, if I really go that extra mile, people are going to remember this, this moment, this tiny little moment with you for like the rest of their lives. And I think, you know, if you take that mindset, I mean, it must be an amazing experience. But if you're sick to death of it and you've got people coming up by Grab Thar's hammer, you're like, oh, for fuck's sake. And of course, nobody plays cheesed off better than Alan Rickman. Alan Rickman. Fucking nobody. He, like the voice, the, he's already got the drawn out face, he already looks annoyed at everything. But I tell you what, what, what I thought was really important about this film as well is the fact that, and you could say it for both of them, for Alan Rickman and uh, Tim Allen, but especially for Tim Allen, that he didn't go for the low-hanging fruit of doing a Shatner impression. 
because it must have been tempting. Like they yeah. must have talked about it. And the fact that he was like, I'm not doing a Shatner impression. I, I think he actually said he, he, he based his performance loosely off Yule Brenner in the Ten Commandments. He, like he just liked the way he sat in his throne. And he was like, <laughs> oh, well, you know, and, and that, that's cool because, you know, he, he's got a vibe about it. But I was so glad he didn't just go for uh Because Shatner's almost beyond parody. Yeah. It, it's like, what, you just do an impression you're just doing Shatner it's it, it's it's almost ridiculous unto itself I suppose but uh yeah I think they made the right choice there but that that, that is the thing with this film it's just a, an array of wise choices yeah. from start to finish so we need to talk about the film in general uh like the aliens mm. they <clears throat> they saw the tv show they believed it was real so they designed ships and everything for even randomly like the omega-13 device which nobody knows where it does but they've designed all of this based on the, I guess, historical documents. But the correct historic, like, like these historical documents apparently have everything correct, even to the point where, in space, there mm-hmm. are planets that have beryllium spheres, like something they've made up for the show, actually <laughs> exists in space. It's it's a bit ridiculous, and I assume there's like an association thing where they're like, oh, well, that looks like the thing from the show. And I was trying to get my head around this. I was like, there wouldn't be enough on the show for the science to catch up with. And of course, we're probably digging a little deeper than we should for a film of this elf. However, what what these shows do, if you take, again, Star Trek is the obvious comparison. Yeah. I mean, that goes out saying, is you have the show, and then you have, if we're going to give them the benefit and say this stuff was on the internet, and that the aliens can see this stuff, yeah. How much additional information is there? Like, if you wanted to find out every last detail of the Enterprise E, for instance, it's there. It might not be official, but there would be, you would be able to get back to front diagnostics, um, you know, um, uh, I don't know, all, all the technical details of that ship from, yeah. sh- it, would, it would just be there. And then and then maybe the aliens could get hold of it. I, again, you can by the fact that I'm falling over my words here that I'm yeah. not quite convinced by what I, I'm saying. I do get what you're saying about the ship. But the mm-hmm. ship is run on a beryllium sphere. Yeah, yeah. Something yeah, they that, made that's... up for the show. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But there is a planet in real outer space that mm-hmm. has beryllium spheres. Are you thinking? Are you thinking Scientology again? <laughs> <laughs> Something's going on, isn't there? <laughs> Something is going on. Yeah, you do. A leap there is required, to say the least. Yeah. That as well. I know we already said about the rudimentary lathe and things like that. That is one of the best scenes. When they're fighting the the pig monster. Oh, yeah, yeah. And they convince Fred to do the machine because it was based on his hand movements to mm-hmm, the mm-hmm. transport. And they transported him. And you can hear uh, Jason on the Vox going, what's that noise? What's that noise? Oh, everything's fine. Everything's fine. Hold, please. And you've got the, the alien. Who, I can't remember his name, but the alien goes, oh, the animal is inside out. Yeah. And it exploded. It exploded. <laughs> just, is it, it was that? Do you think that was a purposeful homage to the fly? It had to be, didn't it? It had to be, right? Yeah, because yeah, that that whole I remember that scene being so famous when I was younger because I hadn't seen the fly at the time, mm. but my a few of my friends had, and everyone talked about the inside out chimpanzee scene, and I was like, yeah. oh my god, this sounds so fucking gross, and it is indeed gross, and the fact that they get away with it in this film, I just about play it for last because it is gross, but th- this one's like a PG, yeah. Yeah, I believe so. Yeah, and you see it throughout the film. I mean, the most famous being the fact that it had 
clearly had swear words in it. The, the, the most famous one being Sigourney Weaver with the chomper scene where they they recreated the ship so perfectly that it has the pointless chompers and the fires. And the way she turns around the corners and you see all the chompers coming down and she clearly says, well, fuck that. <laughs> the, the, it's just so clumsily dubbed over. Yeah. And it was supposedly the director was like really furious. He was just like, I want to keep the swearing in. And he was like, no, 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 we, we have to make this a PG. So he kept the scene in as it is, just with a really clumsy dub. Had- and you could... Sorry. Sorry, go on. No, I was just saying, it. like, you can see it's so close to being a not a completely di- I, I feel like it'd fundamentally be the same movie, but for a slightly different audience. You, you can see how this could shift to a 15 really easily, yeah. how it would have swearing well, and everybody it would be a bit more cutting, perhaps. Initially, it was like you said, it was darker. Mm-hmm, I, mm-hmm. I think I've got it in fact somewhere as well that it was a darker take on on all of this, but they they went down the more family-friendly route. Which I actually think benefits this movie in the in the long term because if they'd gone for like all out comedy, for instance, because this film is funny. Don't get me wrong; yeah. it's got some of my favorite lines of any movie from the last twenty five years. But it doesn't fall back on jokes. Like this film isn't joke, 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 joke. No. What it really is is a character piece first, which just so happens to have a really interesting setup. And like you said, like it's on the edge of like, it could go either way. It's like, if you add more jokes, it could really become family friendly. If you add a few more swear words, it could be a more dramatic movie. And instead, it probably sits just about in the perfect spot of being a very charming, very wholesome movie, but with that little bit of an edge because the, you know, yeah. because of the characters and the way that they're written. And I think that's the the reason it's aged so well. I think if this movie is all jokes, I don't think 23 years later. Oh my God, 23 years later. Yeah. Is it 20? It's 24, 24 now. 24 Fuck. Yeah. Oh my God. Okay. I'm just going to take a <laughs> breath about that. But 24 four years later, if this is all jokes, I don't think this ages in the same way. Instead, I think this film has aged like a fine wine. And uh, sorry if you wanted to butt in there because I was going to go straight into something else here. No, no, yeah, I, I, do, I do want to say something else, but okay, I will yeah, yeah, sorry. it has more of a heart than yeah. it would do if it if it was uh, comedy. There are two things I wanted to mention before you uh, before you move on. Mm-hmm. Sigourney Weaver has again one of my my second favorite lines in this whole. You mentioned in Chomper scene mm-hmm. right at the end, not the fuck that scene. <laughs> See, that's, that's weird, isn't it? Like that's that would be one of my top one of my like top three quotes from this film, and it isn't actually in the film. The, the only way it works is if she actually says what she says. Well, fuck that. I, the line that's in it, I'm not so mad about. But when I see the scene, I hear, "Well, fuck that." So yeah, crazy. at the end of it, when they get out of it, she goes, "Whoever designed this scene must die." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, all about the same scene. Yeah, yeah she's awesome. And uh, Sam Rockwell, mm-hmm. I, I, I know we've mentioned him a couple of times. Is he doing low-key porn in between doing these conventions? Because he has the best porn mustache. Especially the end of the film when they when they they kind of redo the show when they they, they have the the instructions. Yeah, yeah, his guy Fleegman and his hair's in like a little quiff, and he does a little nod to the screen. That is very porny. Yeah, that is. Although speaking of porn, here we go. I was saying the one issue with this film is that it doesn't lean enough into ship porn. What I mean there is like when, when like there's the sequence. Having sex. No, 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 no. When the the opening sequence, when, not the opening sequence. When you see the ship for the first time, yes. Like it's very. What it really does is mirror the sequence from uh, Star Trek: A Motion Picture. Ah, oh, see, that, I was going to say Starship Troopers. Oh, Starship Troopers. But uh, dude, if you go back, I know you're not a Star Trek guy, but Star Trek, the motion picture, I, I rewatched it in the cinema just a few months ago. And it's actually it holds up pretty well. It needs to be seen on the big screen though, because it is slow. 
But what it does is they're so impressed with their own work on recreating the, the ship that basically they have a flyby of the ship that lasts for a good three to four minutes. Easy. And it's just the music and it's just the ship. It's a close-up of the ship. There's more ship. Bit of music, more ship. And it is ship porn. And my wife looked at me. She goes, what did you say? I said, ship porn. She goes, Jesus Christ, I thought you said shit porn. I was like, no, no, Jesus Christ. <laughs> she just thought I just casually in the middle of the film and gone, this, this movie needs more shit porn. Yeah, what this, what, what this movie needs is more two girls, one cup. Or yeah, yeah, exactly. So not Talk shit about porn. The ship. Let's go back to the ship. It needs well, shit porn. When I said about Starship Troopers, like mm. you said about did it imitate the fly, did they also, and Starship Troopers was 1997, so it was two years before this, mm-hmm. but the whole scene where oh, Denise Richards reverses the ship out. 100%. Just misses the space station. But yeah. in this one, what was his name in this? Uh, oh, Tommy Webber. Yeah, Tommy yeah. Webber can't miss. And you mm-hmm. just have that that really, as he's screeching. That, well, that's one of my favorites. And we will get to this in favorite scenes. I, I won't mention it because I, I, was, I was between two for favorite scene, but that was one of them. And I thought that scene in particular captured the tone of this movie absolutely perfectly because it's the first time that it actually feels like a sci-fi movie. Yeah. Like, you know, they're all sitting in their seats. He's taking the ship out. And it is, they do that exactly, like you said, they do that scene in Starship Troopers, but that itself is taken from Star Trek. They do that sequence where they take them out of space dock and it's really slow. It takes ages and they make a big deal out of it. And this does the same thing. The the music by, um, God, what's his name? Uh, David Newman, uh, which is fantastic in this movie throughout, really plays that scene as a traditional sci-fi moment. Like yeah. the heroic captain taking out his crew. And just as you think, oh, this is kind of inching towards a, a, a more traditional sci-fi movie. Like you said, it scratches against the side. And the build-up to it is perfect. And not just that, but how long it scratches against yeah. the side. It just keeps going and going and going. It's, it's just before that as well, when Tommy turns around to Guy Fleegman. Because they're all, like the alien said, a bunch of us want to see this historic moment. So, yeah, it's fine. All of a sudden, there's so many on the bridge. Mm-hmm. And Tommy just turns around to Guy and goes, yeah, I'd hate to be the captain right now. And then you, Tommy, take us out. Huh? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, shit, it's me. It's yeah. me. I'm the one being tested here. Yeah. But that is, to bring it back around to the point I was going to make, this is a perfect scene for that. Because one thing that scene is, and it was so, it was something I was genuinely concerned about. Because this film, as we said, was made nearly 24 years ago, is the fact that it still looks fantastic. Because this film is predicated on the idea that, of course, you know, watching this in 1999 is that you had this crummy show from 1982, which looked really cheesy. And you could, you know, like the original Star Trek, you can see the sets and stuff. And then suddenly they're thrust into a real version of that. Now, if, if coming to this film 24 years later, the actual space stuff doesn't look right, if that suddenly looks crummy, this whole film fundamentally falls down. Yeah. And I was genuinely, I was like, fuck, if the special effects don't hold up here, this film won't work anymore. No. Because it looks- it's the, the whole point, like the joke is gone. Like that becomes its own joke in a weird way. The but only- the great news is, it like unbelievably, this film still looks fantastic. The only thing that looked a bit dated and the only thing Mm-hmm. Uh, for for the space was when they send Jason back the first time. They cover mm-hmm. him in the space condom, space loop <laughs> stuff. Yeah. Then they open the door and you see all those planets together. Mm-hmm, that mm-hmm. kind of date, like that, that, that didn't look. 
It, but it looked okay. That was yeah, like you said. That was like the big okay. sci-fi moment. Yeah, it it didn't look like I said. It didn't. I don't think it held up as much as all the other space stuff. The ships flying through, dragging the mines, everything mm-hmm. in space. It all looked fantastic. To this day, twenty-four years later, it still yeah. looks great. It does. Mm-hmm. But that's the only thing I think that didn't yeah. hold up. No, there were there were certain bits when, like I say, it ages it a little bit more than others. But for the most part, for the most part, sorry. It still passes the test. Yeah. Like that was the important thing. Like, yeah, I, I agree with you. That was the one bit where I was like, mm, that bit doesn't look great now. But for the most part, I still buy into it. So the joke still works, which is the important thing. Let's, but, uh, uh, let's mention somebody we haven't mentioned. And I can't believe we've got so far into it. And we haven't mentioned it more than just passing Sigourney Weaver. Oh, when the Marco in it is fucking great. Like the whole, I have one line and I mm-hmm. like I have one job on the ship and I'm going to do it. And my job is to just repeat the computer. Like, uh, yeah, she she's great. In it. And the other thing, like she looks amazing in this yes. film. Like she looks so, and it was, I remember it being weird at the time because obviously I'd grown up with her as, I know Dave, you know, he's been on this podcast before. He always had a crush on Scorny Weaver as a strong woman. He's got weird issues with that, but it's fine. <laughs> But I never saw, like, in the same way I think people viewed Arnold Schwarzenegger, it was like they went beyond the idea of being... kind of asexual at that point. Yeah, exactly. That's how I saw it. Like, I literally, it wasn't like, I because she's clearly an attractive woman, but I'd never even thought about her in that way. And I remember seeing this for the first time, and the top being down, and I was like, God, and she was 50 when she made this. Yeah. And she looks absolutely smoking. But, of course, you know, this was the only one that could it was a really dangerous casting and i i think initially they weren't going to cast Sigourney weaver because they wanted an unknown and she actually insisted she's like well i'm literally the queen of of sci-fi you know this has to be me and and it'll work as a joke and thank god it absolutely does and of course you know the fact they've got three absolutely fantastic actors in the 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 three obviously everyone's great in this film but the three key roles really are Sigourney Weaver and Rickman and Tim Allen and they all knock it out of the park and she's like the fact that she's willing to kind of send herself up in so many respects and play such a a sexy character because as I said she's one of these weird women I always remember when I was younger they they used to do those um you know remember the top 100 sexiest women's like FHM FHM yeah yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. Obviously, they were all voted for by men. People didn't realize they used to do a women's equivalent. And I think it was usually, you know, a lot of them, the majority would have been straight women voting for the most attractive female women. And I, uh, <laughs> the most attractive female women, what a what a <laughs> weird sentence. But I remember when I was younger, one of those, the number one was Sigourney Weaver, as voted for by women. They thought of her as being the most beautiful woman. And I was like, oh, that's kind of weird. But she is a very striking woman. But in this, she plays a, a different role. And she, yeah, of course, she's absolutely fantastic. So she's clearly, in this, parodying Jerry Ryan, isn't she? From Voyager. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And it's it's... She does so well, though. Like, everything she does, she she's like the, the mother of the group. She tries to keep them all together, but mm-hmm. obviously... They have that low-key relationship as well, which isn't actually given a huge amount of time, but also works because, again, they're both fantastic. Yeah. And what I said, you said the three key roles are Tim Allen, Alan Rickman, and mm-hmm. Sigourney, Sigourney Weaver. Weaver. I nearly chewed on my tongue then to say Tim Allen <laughs> and Alan Rickman. Together. Yeah, yeah, it is quite a sentence. So Tim Allen Rickman and Sigourney <laughs> Weaver. Yeah, yeah. It's a pity they didn't get to do much more together after this. Like, I, oh, I would love to see other things that they did together. Like, they were so good. Like, no, no offense to the the rest of the cast, but those three together, no, they were great. 
They, they were absolutely fine. Well, like, you like, just wanted to see, and we'll get to this in Legacy, you just wanted to see more of this. Yeah. Like, I but, just want to see, and like I mentioned earlier that the great thing about this film is the fact that it gives time to all the characters. However, that does also mean the other side of that coin is that you don't get as much time with Sigourney Weaver and T- like their kind of relationship by the end when they have the kiss and stuff. It's only t- it's testament to the fact that they're so good in this film that that works because there isn't much screen time to get us to that point. Yeah. They don't have a huge amount. There's not like this big will they, won't they kind of thing. You just get like little hints in the backgrounds without any dialogue. There's no flashback scenes that maybe there was something there and they do enough with what's on the page, which isn't much for them for it to work. But of course, I would love to see another movie I, and I want to see all of them. I just want to see more of everything. Sadly. It's the, it's the brother relationship as well between Tim Allen Rickman. I'm sticking <laughs> with it now. Yeah, yeah, totally. Right, Because <clears throat> like, that they love hate each other. I mean, one mm-hmm. person hates the other person more, but it's so good. Like when they have that fake fight, and then at the end of it, they're going, "You've seen stealing hack? Was I wrong?" <laughs> things like that, and they yeah. like you stole all the best lines and and all those things. And then you get to the point right at the end, then where Alan Rickman saves everyone, like the the whole like saves them in the barracks from mm-hmm. suffocating. Mm-hmm. And he's there, he's ready for his adoration. He's got his hands in the air. They're going, he did it, he did it. Commander Taggart saved us. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All Alan Rickman at that point can say is, of course. Okay. Like, uh, well, of that, course. that again, you know, without a huge amount on the page. And it, it helps, of course, that the narrative is already there. Like, if you're a, a Trekkie in any kind of sense, and not even a hardcore Trekkie, if you're just aware of the world, you're already, the brilliant thing about this film is that it plays on your awareness of those relationships. You know, the idea of what, like, Kirk um, Shatner was like and what the rest of the cast thought of him. They're kind of like, well, people already know that, so we won't go too deep into it. But that, that again, that relationship between Tim Allen and um, Alan Rickman, it is difficult, you are right. <laughs> it's kind of like he hates him, but he also begrudgingly respects him. Yeah. Like, he knows he's good at what he does. And he's like, I, I wish I got that level of that. He, like, he knows he's angry because deep down he's actually just a bit jealous. Like, don't get me wrong, he... Tim Allen's character is also a dick, but he's also a little bit jealous of that relationship he has with fans and his ability to kind of, you know, be perceived in a certain way. And the fact that, you know, at the, at the end, when he can be the hero, he wouldn't admit that, of course, if you asked him that he wanted to be the traditional hero. He'd be like, oh, of course not. I'm not interested in that. But when it happens, he's so into it. But of course, his moment's stolen as always by Taggart. So <laughs> what can you do? But... um. Before we moved on, I did want to mention one or two things. I just, I, I mentioned the fact earlier about how this film, if it had been released like 15 years later, and I think it's just my excuse to mention another film from around the same time that I absolutely love, because the, the year after this, Unbreakable was released, the M. Night Shyamalan uh, superhero film with Bruce Willis. Oh, was that after this? Yeah, it was 2000, yeah. And I was like, I don't think I've ever come across two films like back to back, which both did pretty well. But I'm just like, my God, if ever two films were just caught 10 years too early. Like, you know, they were those films, both of them now, Unbreakable and this, are so relevant 24 years later. Yeah. I'm like, and of course, there's there's numerous reasons why it's a shame that, you know, Alan Rickman died in 2016. But you're like, oh, my God, if ever there was a perfect... Like, you know, Unbreakable did get its sequels eventually. Um, they weren't as good as the original, sadly. And maybe the, the, the sequels to this wouldn't have been as good. But you're just like, there's, there's just no way 
in this world of like streaming, you know, especially with all the competition going on now with Netflix, Apple TV, you know, uh, Disney, the full works, that this doesn't get made. But they've, they, it's just such a shame that they've had to go back to square one because I assume like so much of it would have been built around that relationship between Alan Rickman and Tim Allen. See, that's how I've gone around it now. I've just changed <laughs> their names around. But um, but yeah, I'm just I think I'm just disappointed that uh, this film you know didn't get the sequel it should have had like maybe five six years ago. But I mean, hey, like like years. things that we're always always disappointed that got cancelled. Mm-hmm. It did live on in comics. I know we'll get to that in Legacy. Mm-hmm. So it did live on in comics, which I suppose is. It's, it's a never the way, same, but it's not. Well, no, because it's it's written like the, the reason you love the film is because of the performance, especially something like this. It's the same with something like Serenity, another thing, you know, or Firefly, whatever you want to call it. Of course, you can put it in comic book form, but the reason, yes, it was great writing and stuff, but that's another show, obviously not a movie, a show instead, or unless you want to say Serenity was a movie, where <laughs> you could say it was perfectly cast in the same way that this was. Yeah. Where you're like, that's the reason. It's it's not so much the stories. You just want to see these actors playing those characters on the screen again. And you can have comic books, you can have all this other bollocks, but it's just not the same. It's not the same. And this is, you know, it, this could have been a perfect example of the opposite of Firefly, where you had a TV show and eventually they got a movie made, whereas this could have been a movie. And you're like, do you want to see a TV show of, Fire, of fucking Galaxy Quest? 100% I do. Of course I do. But never mind, obviously. Uh, whether it'll happen or not, we'll get to that in Legacy, but a bit of a shame all the same. Um, should we move on to um, favorite, favorite scenes? scenes and all that, yeah. bollocks? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I, I mentioned I was going to do the uh, leaving Spaceport bit, but really, because it's got so many great quotes, is the rock monster sequence. You know, th- this film doesn't actually have a huge amount of action in it. And this is maybe one of the key action sequences in the entire film. One, the, the effects hold up really well. Two, there's like tons of nods to the original Star Trek. But it really is, is the quote. You know, we, we mentioned that can you form some for- form of rudimentary lathe? And when it's like aim for its vulnerable box, it's a rock. It doesn't have any vulnerable, vulnerable spots. It's it's just like great quotes after great quotes, while at the same time being a pretty competent action scene, which is maybe underplaying it. It is very well. There's another low key one in there as well, or, or am I mis misquoting it? Something about Alan Rickman saying, "Of course, you had to get your shirt off." Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. That's yeah. all the same sequence. Yeah, <laughs> like, absolutely. And again, plays up the whole thing that no matter what, ta- like Alan Rick- Alan Rickman, Tim Allen's character is going to end up being the hero no matter what. Yeah. Like, of course, he does the heroic thing, and even then, when he does it to save the rest of the crew, you can see Alan Rickman's like, "Oh, for fuck! Of course he'd do that. Of course yeah. he would do that. And of course his top would fall off. Ridiculous." <laughs> but yeah, I- I'm going to go with the rock monster sequence as my favorite scene. Mine might might surprise you. Uh, my favorite scene is is back at the convention at the mm-hmm. beginning where Tim Allen goes to the toilet. And then... This is surprising me, yeah. Yeah. And then he hears that everyone, like, hates him. He, like, everyone just thinks he's a joke. And the way he changes, the mm-hmm. way he's in the toilet, then he hears these two guys say, but not just that he thinks, he's, they think he's a joke, mm-hmm. but actually his, uh, his friends, who he fought with friends, think he's a joke as well and yeah, they yeah, actually that's... hate him and mm. then you see him change then before he went to the toilet he's this guy he's got all the, the the his fans around him he's telling them stories he's loving life then when it goes back then he's just signing flicking and he yells at justin long who we haven't mentioned much in this did fucking fantastic in this film oh yeah he's great in this as well he's really uh, likable and then they're just trying to get an answer to this question about the goof of, uh, that they saw on the TV show. And he just yells mm-hmm. and tells us the TV show, it's make-believe, grow up. Mm-hmm. And that, I think, <clears throat> that's what delivers the heart 
in mm-hmm, regards mm-hmm. to and like it changes then it changes him he becomes drunk and then that's when he goes into space and everything he realizes it's all real but yeah yeah, yeah. just i don't know the change no. of dying for tim allen I think as well, like that is a really like it's not my favorite sequence, but it is one of the more important sequences because it shows that his ego is like it's on a knife edge. It's almost like he's putting on this performance because he has to believe this is the person that he is. Yeah. But it only it only needs the slightest of knocks, and it is the slightest of knocks. Like, let's be clear, everyone else there loves him, adores him. It's yeah. too like dweeby teenagers who come in who think they're too cool for comic conventions. They're still but there, they but they think. But yeah, they've gone, but they think they're too cool for him. Like, oh, look at all these fucking dweebs and all oh, this stupid captain. You know, he thinks everyone loves him, but he's washed up. And it's like, you know, who, who really gives a shit what these two fucking dweebs in the toilet think? But of course, he's so on that kind of knife edge. And all it needs is like that tiny push to, yeah. like, to push him back towards depression and towards alcohol and all these other things kind of thing. You know, he's, he's basically, you call him bipolar, I guess, nowadays. Yeah. But you need that for, to be, for that connection with the character because it'd be too easy to hate him. You know, along with the, with the rest of the cast, but when you see that, it, you know, it, it kind of softens the character and makes the relationship between him and the rest of the cast a bit more complex, I suppose. So, yeah, absolutely, one of the most important scenes in the film for sure. Yeah, should we go on to uh, loves and hates? Loves and hates. Uh, yeah, um, one, I'm sure you'll have the same thing. The cast back to front. I mean, we we mentioned the, the big three, the three on the poster, but everyone else. Sam Rockwell arguably steals the show. Tony Shalab, like, is absolutely fantastic. So yeah, back to front, absolutely the cast. Um, again, I've mentioned it a few times, but the tone is absolutely perfect. The fact, you know, if if this had just kept up the um, parody thing all the way through the film, again, I don't think it works. If this is just going for the jokes, oh, it, we're, we're just making fun of Star Trek. We're just making fun of fandom. This doesn't work. The fact that it moves from a parody into an homage into a character piece is the reason that it works 24 years later. Um, and again, I mentioned before, but the fact that the, the, the effects hold up, I was genuinely concerned about that. I was like, I, this doesn't, this movie doesn't work anymore. If this film, if the, the special effects for what space actually looks like, look shit in yeah. like, cause again, it's easy to forget. There's a bigger gap now between now and that movie than there was between that movie and the fake TV show in like the early eighties. So it's like, Oh my God, what are we looking at? But yeah, it still holds up. And of course, uh, yeah, Sigourney Weaver's boots. (laughs) (laughs) By the way, I have to explain. When we're watching the film, of course, like in the original TV show, she has a top lower and stuff, but in this film, all of a sudden, towards the end, her top is almost completely undone and her yeah. boobs are like absolutely revealed. And we were, my wife and I were watching it and I'm like, yeah, they're, they're fantastic. This is the second film in a row with a great pair of boobs playing a major part in the movie after The Rocketeer, of course. But I was like, why is it so undone? What's happened? There's actually a deleted scene in this film where um, two of the green alien dudes show up and she has to, they, basically, they've got her and Tim Allen dead to rights. And they they start talking about how attractive she is. So she tricks them by pulling down her top and saying, oh, come to me and stuff and playing up. And she then uses the door to squish the aliens. (laughs) So that's the reason that a top is so far down is because of a scene which is deleted from the film. But of course, when you watch it, it's just one sequence, she's just dressed. And then the next sequence, she just isn't. It sounds like the the producers got involved when they think we need her top to be lower. Yes, yes. Yeah. And even then afterwards, they're like, well, we're not keeping the scene in. Well, yeah, but we're keeping the boobs, too. We're definitely keeping the boobs. <laughs> so, yeah, they're my four loves. <laughs> so, I mean, not much of a difference for me. So Mine are, yeah, they're pretty much the same. So the the, the cast, I think, all great. I, I We said that the three mains were fantastic, but Sam Rockwell steals it, and he's just 
everything he's in, he's just he's loving life with it. He, he does fantastic. Mm-hmm. The way it, the way it looks, the 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 space battles, everything like that. I think it still holds up today. It's absolutely- that was another thing you mentioned, like the space battles, the way it looks. The one thing, the the idea of this coming full circle, um, and we've not mentioned him too much. We obviously we mentioned uh, the fact that he's played by um Robin Sachs, but Saris and and the the aliens. I forget yeah. the name of the the race. They got a weird name. What they do look like when you see the inside of their ship and when the, you do have like the big action sequence towards the end of the film, what it reminds me of is the 2009 reboot of uh, Star Trek. Yeah. It really looks very like similar Eric to Banner's that ship. ship yeah. yeah, yeah. Eric Banner's ship, like it has that same green kind of hue to everything. I know the aliens don't look the same, but the ship and the effects and stuff, it all looks surprisingly similar. I was like, oh, it's this weird example of it going full circle of going Star Trek, Galaxy Quest, back to Star Trek again. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, the third one for me then is, uh, do you know what? Just the heart of the film. Yeah, I think that's fair enough. Just absolutely, just it's it's it captures the magic and it just it doesn't let it go and it's it's just it's great for a for a low key sci fi film. It's it's really really good. Well, it, it, the thing is, it, it means you like things matter in this film. Like one of my like, and I will get to hates now. Uh, uh, at the start, at least with the Thermians, I do actually find them quite annoying. But they're so relentlessly positive, and like you said, this film has got so much heart to it that when things do happen later in the film, the more dramatic um, elements, it, it matters. It's like when when um, Mathasar is being um, tortured yeah. by Saras, and he's like, "Oh no, you have to explain to him that you're actors." It's like a father explaining to a kid that Santa Claus isn't real. And it's genuinely fucking heartbreaking, despite the fact that they're like really overdoing it with the acting. And even later on, like the stuff with <coughs> Tim Allen's character and the, the death of uh, Quellick, they don't have much screen time together. But when he's dying on the floor and he's like, by Grabdar's hammer, I will avenge you. That's a genuinely emotional yeah. sequence. Yeah. And it, it's, again, it's just the tone of the movie, the writing, the performances, and we we haven't actually mentioned him yet. I'm sorry, I'm stealing your thunder a bit here, but Dean Parasot, the director, like I didn't know any of his work, and you know I, I I don't think any of his work has come close to this. I mean, he did some good TV stuff. He's worked on ER, he's worked on Curb Enthusiasm, but when you look at what he's directed for the big screen, like he did Fun with Dick and Jane with Jim <laughs> Carrey. I totally, I honestly forgot that film even existed, despite the fact that I've seen it. He did Red Two. It's a pretty bad sequel to the original. He did Bill and Ted Face the Music. Again, a pretty bad sequel to the original two. It's eclectic for sure. Yeah. But then in the middle of it, he's just got Galaxy Quest, this absolute stone cold classic. It's like no matter what else he does, like, dude, you've always got Galaxy Quest to fall back on. Because I don't think I've ever heard anyone with an unkind word for this film. Like literally anyone. Everyone no. loves this film. When one of my friends, because I said we were doing this for the podcast, one of my friends told me, and he he's kind of vaguely into you know sci-fi stuff. He was like, I haven't seen Galaxy Quest. It was the only thing it compares is like you saying you've not seen any Star Trek or whatever crazy thing, but I've become accustomed to you at, with your bizarre cinematic choices. But for him to say he hadn't seen Galaxy Quest, I was like, and unsurprisingly, I did recommend it, which is yeah. know, getting ahead of myself here, but never mind. Uh, do you yeah, have any hates? I mean, That's the important thing. Do we actually stole, have any hates? You stole my absolute thunder for a. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I do apologize. But I just realized we hadn't mentioned the director. I thought that we were, yeah. you know, let's sneak that in there. Um, and I'm going to keep stealing the thunder because I'm going to go straight into hates. Uh, one, there's no sequel. Absolute crime. Uh, the Thermians are a bit annoying, at least initially. But yeah, I know they kind of come around a bit. Um, and the fact that it was released at least 12 years too early. Again, I know they're more situational criticisms rather than the film itself. But I really can't find 
much to criticize with this film. Oh, the dudes in the toilet. I know that scene was important, but they were a bit lame. But again, I'm I'm really stretching here. No, I, I was stretching as well. Mine are more uh, choices within the writing to move the script along. Mm-hmm. Like the brilliant sphere. Just, yes, good point. Yeah. Uh, and the other one being that the Thermians didn't know any, they were all historical documents of the Thermians, but Saris knew what actors were, Saris knew what tissue paper was, Saris knew, like, he's been on Earth, <laughs> and he's, like, the actor is pretending to be captain, my ship will tear through yours, like, tissue paper, or tissue paper, as he calls it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, I was trying to, again, another thing I was trying to get my head around, like, because Saris, like, you know, the way he thinks and stuff is much more human. Whereas maybe you've got this race where, you know, in the same way that, you know, like, I don't know, um, Vulcans, they're all about um, logic. Like, they, they're these, like, this race of aliens who are, excuse me, technically fantastic. They, yeah. They're obviously very talented, but they can't get their head around these concepts. Like, that's their issue. Like, they, they there are certain things they're brilliant at. But their brains just don't allow them to take that next kind of logical step, I suppose. But yeah, it, like you said, it's still a bit of a jump for sure. Yeah. And my last, we'll, we'll put that down to the need for comedy. See, my last hate is the fact that you picked up poor Tony Shalhoub's dog and drop kicked it across Central Park. Of like, course, there was that. There was I, that. Uh, as a fifteen-foot man, <laughs> a small dog and just kicking it like uh, terrible mates. I honestly, like jokes aside, I wish someone could have taken a picture of my face in that moment because I don't even, I can't even think what it would be like. That whole thing of being so sorry that you stepped on someone's dog, but then also seeing a famous person, like you just look up because I didn't see him. I just, I stepped on the dog. I looked up. I was like, oh, like, you know, like you just, because I couldn't remember his name and I couldn't remember what, did what he, he say was to you from. At that point? I almost wanted to just shout out, oh, there's the guy from the thing. I can't remember. What the fuck? What did he, he say to you at that point? He was perfectly pleasant. I, I didn't actually, like, I almost stepped on his okay. dog. You know, when you just kind of like, oh, 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 I'm sorry. And he was like, oh, yeah, no problem at all. I was like, dude, I, you know, trying to play it cool. I'm like, I, I'm so sorry about that. He's like, no problem at all. And he just that wandered story, off. That story reminded me, we went to, uh, I went to a mutual friend's wedding back in 2012. Uh, in Ireland, and uh, he uh, he had a, b- a bunch of his Irish friends there, and we all got drunk, and we got to the end of the night, and one of the Irish guys was just sat there, and he was a bit quiet at first, and then he starts telling us a story, and he said, uh, oh, I used to be a, a, a bellhop or a, in a, work in a hotel, and I had to pick up uh, a, a room service tray once, mm-hmm. And I don't do Irish accent, so I'm not even going to try. But he said I had to oh, pick such up... Such a shame. <laughs> I will do the Irish accent for, for the punchline. He said I had to pick up uh, a room service tray, and it was big and it was heavy, and I picked it up. And as I'm walking out the door, I tripped over something. And I couldn't see what it was, so I just kept walking. I turned around. I turned around to see where I tripped over, and, yeah, I kicked the baby. Kicked a baby. Yeah, the baby <laughs> crawled out of the hotel room. He couldn't see because he was carrying his tray, and he just he kicked the baby. Just kicked, just kicked the baby. Yeah. Just kicked the baby. Fair was, enough. Like we weren't even asking him to tell the story. He was just so drunk. He decided to just tell the like, story. Oh yeah, I kicked the baby. Yeah, <laughs> I was the baby. Oh, you don't want to know, dude. Yeah. So I, know. I know somebody that kicked the baby, and now I know somebody that drop kicked the dog. So yeah, well there yeah. you go. There yeah, you we're go. moving on. Um, do, before we do facts, did you want to do that new, um, what was it? Names yeah, in so different actually, I've, uh, <laughs> I, I don't know why. We, we mentioned it before for like a couple of times. Random, uh, the titles of films 
mm-hmm. randomly in other countries. So I was just looking up Galaxy Quest. Now, this isn't as funny as like some of the ones that we had for like uh, Evil Dead, Army of Darkness, mm-hmm, things mm-hmm. like that. But what I want to do is if I find some of the funny ones or ones that are just odd, I thought we'd do titles from around the world. Yeah, yeah, go for it. So uh, for Argentina, it was called Heroes Out of Orbit. For Bulgaria, it was called A Galactic Mission. For Canada, it was called uh, the French Canadian title. It was called In Search of a Galaxy. <laughs> Croatia, it was show? a galactic adventure. Taiwan, it was galactic pursuit. Vietnam, it was the search in the galaxy. Jesus Christ! But well, I think favorite, uh, all right, here we my go. favorite is Germany. Galaxy Quest dash aimlessly through space. Uh, that feels like the direct-to-DVD sequel to this film. That's exactly what that feels like. Which I would, it, have, watched. It, I would have watched that. It's amazing that you brought that up because just before we start this podcast, there was a video of, um, uh, what's his name, um, from Andor, the lead actor whose name I've forgotten. Anyway, he's Mexican, and he was talking about in, in Mexico. Diego Luna. Diego Luna, thank you very much. R2-D2 isn't called R2-D2. In Mexico, he's called Arthurito, which is <laughs> which is Mexican for little Arthur. And the reason is because Arthurito sounds a little bit like R2-T2. <laughs> and he also looks a little bit like a little Arthur, which I thought was absolutely inspired. Yeah. So now I kind of want to look up what R2-T2 is known as around the world. But uh, yeah, hopefully we'll come across a couple of decent ones. But yeah, Germany completely should ruin like the other ones. Galaxy Quest is the best of the bunch by far. Yeah. The other ones I can understand, there's translation issues. The fact that they just took Galaxy Quest, but then added on some bollocks at the end for no apparent reason is absolutely unforgivable. <laughs> so D, D minus for Germany, sadly. Yeah. Right, um, so we move on to some facts. Yes, go for it. Yeah, let's do that. So the scene when Tim Allen is in the men's room overhearing how the cast of Galaxy Quest are nobodies and all the co-stars can't stand him mirrors an actual event in William Shatner's life. He discovered the exact same things about himself when he attended a 1986 convention. Ah, oh, that's awesome. I mean, it's not awesome, but I mean, it kind of lends to the fact that, like you said, they saw it as a documentary. And I think um, William Shatner like visited the set, and I think he, he's become very good friends with Tim Allen since, which yeah. is kind of cool. Gwen DeMarco laments that her TV Guide interview was six paragraphs of my boobs and how they fit into my suit. This, again, mirrors Jerry Ryan, who played Seven of Nine on Star Trek Voyager. She yeah. had an interview that just went on about her boobs. It, the thing is, Jerry Ryan and the whole Deep Space Nine thing was it? No, not Deep Space Nine. It was Voyager, wasn't it? She was yeah. on. Yeah, Voyager. Sorry, my apologies. It was such a big deal back in, at that. Like for for people of my age, you know, we were all what, like fourteen, thirteen when this came out, like the prime age, and there was such a big thing about her boobs. It just yeah. was a thing, sadly. And I can imagine her sadly having to put up with these interviews. And even now, twenty four years later, I spent far too much time talking about Sigourney Weaver's boobs, so I do apologize. And I am definitely part yeah. of the problem. <laughs> uh, Sam Rockwell bases portrayal on Bill Paxton's performance in James Cameron's Aliens, which you can clearly see. A hundred percent. In particular, 100%. his elevated fear of being killed and his mental collapse upon seeing a motion detector that shows the enemy closing in on them. Yeah, yeah, The green thing <laughs> is going towards the blue thingy. Yeah. <laughs> that is great. The red thingy is going towards the Yo, blue thingy. I didn't even pick that up. But as soon as you said Bill Paxton, I was like, of course he's doing Bill Paxton. Of course he is. Yeah. Uh yeah, we've already said he never removes his headpiece. On the rock planet, Lieutenant Laredo chides Dr. Lazarus for holding his tracking device upside down, claiming that he actually thought Dr. Lazarus's character was smart or something. 
<laughs> by the way, he was leading the group to find the nearest beryllium sphere before realizing he was using the device incorrectly. This is a subtle reference to the first season of Star Trek, where Spock often held his tricorder back to front, possibly due to Leonard Nimoy being not yet familiar with the prop. Yeah, again, it just goes to show that they know their stuff. Like, you know, this this wasn't just thrown together. This was made with love and affection. Uh, but knowing that it is all patently ridiculous, knowing that the original Star Trek was a little bit ridiculous, knowing that the more extreme sides of fandom, and I don't mean that as in the, the dark side of fandom, just like how obsessive it is. Yeah. That stuff isn't sugarcoated. It doesn't tiptoe around the fact that these people really are nerds and they are completely obsessed with this stuff. But again, the joke is always with them rather than at their expense, which is important. Yeah. Uh, the casting director loved Enrico Colantoni's audition so much. He was Mathazar. Mm-hmm. He broke protocol and showed this to other actors to demonstrate how the Thermian should behave. <laughs> so yeah. he, he got the gig before he even knew he got the gig. Yeah, like everyone just follows suit. Just do what this guy's fucking doing, yeah. which everyone does in fairness. The character Guy Fliegman was an intentional homage to busy Star Trek The Next Generation actor Guy Vardaman, who not only played several no-name extras in the series, but also served as a stunned stand-in double for Brent Spiner and Will Wheaton. His reaction to the homage, I just about fell out of my chair, having forgotten being told that the character would appear in a film someday. Yeah, crazy. At the beginning of the film, Tommy's line, you are so full of shit, man, was redubbed to you're so full of it, man. When faced with going through the chompers, Gwen's line, well, fuck that, was redubbed to say, well, F, screw that. It's mm-hmm. commonly stated that the redub version is, well, screw that, but an F sound is audible. <laughs> These edits were to avoid an R rating. The original lines are still obvious when reading their lips. It's the most reluctant dub in movie history. Yeah. That's what it is. It, even, it leaves in the F. You can clearly see what she's saying. It feels like one of those like clumsy, you, you used to get, I'm not sure if you still get it nowadays, but I'm sure we've mentioned it before, like uh, it'd be on like ITV2 at 9 p.m. Die Hard and, you know, yippee Kaye, Mother Scratcher and all that nonsense <laughs> is just terrible, terrible dubs. I love the fact that it's actually made it into the movie. Uh, in theatres, the first 20 minutes of the film were presented in 185 by one mm-hmm. widescreen image. When Tim Allen first realises he's on a real spaceship and the vista of Thermia is revealed, the screen image widened to 235. That's- so you get three different, because actually it starts smaller because it's doing the original show. Yeah. Then it would have opened up. Then it would have opened up again, yeah. which was pretty wild, actually. I think that's like, the only thing I can think of is something like uh, recently was Tron Legacy where you had 3D glasses, but the 3D isn't on until the act- you actually go into the grid. And then suddenly the grid comes on, the 3D kicks in, which I thought was, I, I actually love that film a little bit, and I wish they'd make a sequel. But uh, yeah, that's really inspired for this film. The reason why uh, Tony Shalhoub gets a fuck buddy in this, Lalari <laughs> is the first main role Missy Pyle landed in a feature film. Her role was expanded after the producers noticed Sigourney Weaver was the only female main character. And supposedly, Steven Spielberg visited the set. I'm not sure if this is true, but Steven Spielberg visited the set, saw them putting a scene together. He loved Van Liari, whatever her name is, played by Missy Powell. He thought she was so great that they expanded the role to have the love interest because Spielberg was such a big fan. And if Spielberg's a fan, you're like, well, we've got to keep going with this. He seems to know his shit. So, yeah. During a fight with the rock monster, Commander Taggart loses his shirt. This is a clear nod to Star Trek, main hero Captain Kirk, who mysteriously lost his shirt in nearly every hand-to-hand combat. Fantastic. Is that true? Oh, a lot, yeah. And they, like, the like the planet they're on looks like the famous one where he fights Spock. They often do. They did a send-up in um, Bill and Ted's Bogus Journey as well, didn't they? Yeah. 
Harold Ramis wanted to cast Alec Baldwin in the lead role, which he turned down. Steve mm-hmm. Martin and Kevin Klein were considered, though Klein turned it down for family reasons. When Tim Allen was cast, Ramis left the project. After seeing the film, Ramis said he was ultimately impressed with Allen's performance. Can you imagine that? Being so pissed off they cast someone <laughs> didn't want, you just leave and then go, actually, he was all right. I guess you've got like an idea in your head, I suppose. And it is one of those ones like you, Harold Ramis, you know, you look at his directorial output and you're like, he would have been a perfect fit for this. You can see why he was in line to direct it. And you look at the people he's casted. Don't get me wrong. We all know now, like retrospectively, like Tim Allen's fantastic in this film. I could totally Steve Martin and Alec Baldwin in this film. Yeah. I can I can totally see both of them. They, I'm sure they would have knocked that apart. But uh, of course, we're all happy the way it ends now. There's absolutely loads, right? And they're all about copying Star Trek as we knew. So I'm just oh, going yeah, to yeah, one yeah. more. And then one more. We'll move on. Alexander Dane, Alan Rickman, accuses Jason Nesmith of stealing his best lines and cutting him from entire episodes. This references the alleged diva behavior of William Shatner during the production of Star Trek, as well as the growing dislike that many of his fellow cast members developed towards him. Shatner was said to frequently request additional takes of scenes to extend his screen time when he felt that other actors became too famous. In many instances, he ordered lines of dialogues to be rewritten for his own character, and he also demanded the lighting of the set should be specifically focused on him. I mean, come on. (laughs) Sounds like a bit of a dick to me, but never mind. (laughs) Oh, one more, one more. Screenwriter Robert Gordon got the idea for the chompers after seeing the corridor lined with rotating blades in Event Horizon. Well, yeah, I mean, it's it's a problem with all of sci-fi. I mean, to one extent or another, there's always like, Star, Star Wars is terrible for it. There's always these long walkways. There's no railings. And there's just fucking drops either side. There's just dangerous drops all over the world of Star Wars. And it's played out in sci-fi all over, you know, all across cinema, where you just have these ridiculously dangerous walkways. Of course, they take it to the extreme here with the chompers and the flames. But it's not far from the reality of what you see on screen at all. Not at all, no. Not at all. Um, in terms of uh, legacy, I mentioned the fact that this film is maybe more relevant than it's ever been. Um, there's been a mo- movie and a TV show planned for years, but it all kind of lost its steam after Alan Rickman died in 2016. Um, there's still talk of an Apple TV show still doing the rounds. So as to whether we'll see it, who knows? But they would have had to start from scratch because I think the initial script, which Tim Allen said was absolutely fantastic, was centered unsurprisingly largely around Alan Rickman and Tim Allen. So yeah, yeah they, that had to go back to uh, back to the start, as it were. Um, but 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 um, the, the original script, you know, I mentioned the the whole relationship between Tim Allen and um, Alan Rickman, and the fact that it works so well on screen. Supposedly, their relationship in real life mirrored it in many respects because Alan Rickman didn't like Tim Allen initially and didn't like his approach to acting because they come in from very different worlds, yeah. as you can imagine. But they became massive friends on on the film and went on to become good friends for the rest of uh, Alan Rickman's life, as far as I know. So yeah, kind of uh, a real life mirroring art, or the other way around, whatever you want to call it. Um, I mentioned the fact that you know this really is the perfect ca- the perfect cast, and you already mentioned you know what a different world this would have been. The fact that Weaver wasn't originally up for the part, and you know they were talking about Steve Martin and Alec Baldwin up for the roles, and I think Tim Allen was actually supposed to play Bicentennial Man initially, which <laughs> which um, went to uh, what's his name, Robin Williams eventually, and Jesus Christ, he dodged a bullet there because that was fucking rough. Yeah. Um, it was actually one of the first movies to use the internet to promote the movie in, very sim- in a very similar way to, um, what was it called? Um, the Blair Witch Project, in that it was a fake website for the original show that was, um, you can actually still visit. It's not no longer live, but it's one of those archived websites. Yeah. So you can visit it, you can't kind of interact with it, you can just see it as it was. But the, the brilliant thing about that, and it's easy for people to forget, especially people who are younger than us, 
that there was no way to disprove that. You could, but you'd have to make so much effort. If there was a website which told you in 1999 that there was a, a show from 82 starring Tim Allen and Sigourney Weaver and stuff, as these people, you'd be like, maybe. <laughs> was there a TV? There could have been a TV show. It just it just wasn't easy to disprove, was it? Like, no. where would you go? Without the internet, unless somebody, like, definitively knew that wasn't a thing or that the that, that webpage was fake. And as you said, it was the same reason that so many were tricked by the Blair Witch. Like, even when I went into the Blair Witch, I was like, dude, the Blair Witch isn't real. This is bullshit. But there was still that thing in the back of your head where it's like, but maybe. <laughs> but maybe. And a lot of people, they weren't, they weren't sure. And, and there just wasn't enough ways for people to disprove it. So that, that was the genius of it. Um, recently, a, a Star Trek convention in 2013 Galaxy Quest was rated the seventh best yes. Star Trek film, yes. which I thought was really interesting. I actually did the, the ratings myself. I think I'd have it as fifth because okay. it's like, don't get me wrong, it's a fantastic film, but it's not an actual Star Trek film. But I would have it behind Wrath of Khan, The Undiscovered Country, Trek 2009, First Contact, and then Galaxy Quest. I'll but take I would, for it. I would argue that Galaxy Quest is the fifth best Star Trek film if you're throwing it in there. It's definitely with maybe you could do a joint fifth with um, the Voyage Home, which is. I'll take your word for it because of all those you mentioned, I've seen 2009 Star Trek. So, oh, fair enough. And I, I rewatched that recently. It's still a great film. It's yeah. a really good fucking film. There's a bit too much in the way of coincidence with the with Stock, Spock showing up, but that's for another podcast. Um, but yeah, that's pretty much it. I've got for uh, Legacy. So um, there's only one more that I wanted to mention. Uh, in 2019, a documentary was released, Never Surrender, a Galaxy Quest documentary. Mm-hmm. I watched it back in 2019. I should have rewatched it before we did this, but I didn't have time. I remember it being a great documentary talking about the film, how they got it made, how the mm-hmm. actors. If you get a chance, I think it's on Sky Documentaries. So if you get a chance, oh, cool. give it a go. It's it, it. I remember it being an absolutely great hour of TV. Just really. I really should have watched that. Yeah. It's yeah. a good, it, yeah. Just give it. I remember watching it at two o'clock in the morning when I uh, when I found it uh, once, and it's it's mm-hmm. re- it was really good, really interesting to watch. So give it a go. I will indeed. I yeah. will indeed. Um, in terms of the score, I mentioned the fact that it's uh, it was by David Newman. It captures the tone absolutely perfectly. It gets it combines comedy or a reverence for the source material. It just ticks every box. This guy, I mean, he has previous in the genre with Serenity, a movie we've already mentioned on this podcast. He also did Bowfinger with Steve Martin and Eddie Murphy, which is a parody of the movie industry, a very different parody, but a parody all the same. Um, that's another film. I mean, we should really, really do that at some point. I fucking love Bowfinger. I remember uh, enjoying no it. I've only ever seen it once. I remember enjoying it though. I do. I do. I think I. I thought it was fantastic. I'd love an excuse to revisit revisit that. So maybe down the line. Um, but yeah, I think that the score is fantastic. I'm not sure if I've got anything else to add to that. Um, in terms of video games, there wasn't a video game. I think there's a really easy answer to this. I, I'm swinging for the fences here in terms of budget, but I want Bioware to do a Mass Effect style video game. Same emphasis on like because you think you know. Mass Effect, you you have like the lead character, but there's a huge emphasis on the whole crew, yeah. And so much of it is you know based on the dialogue and their relationships. It's just that, but with more comedy and less action, basically. So uh, yeah, that's what I'd go for, for a video game. I'll I'll go with you because I mean the only other thing I I could think of was kind of like those Telltale games. Yeah, that wouldn't be a bad like, uh, that wouldn't be a bad shot at all. The Telltale Back to the Future did, and 
That's or... a more realistic choice, I think. I mean, I've really like the, the idea of like getting a Bioware style Mass Effect budget to make a Galaxy Quest game. I don't think that's going to happen. So no. I think the Telltale's approach. I think my version is maybe a bit more fun, but your version is a bit more realistic. So let's go with that. But I mean, we never go realistic on this on this episode on this podcast, do we? So let's let's stick with uh, with fun, and we'll go Mass Effect. Mass Effect colon Galaxy Quest. Yeah. I'm good okay, with that. Fair enough. Let's go with that. Um, right, in terms uh, of ratings and stuff, yeah, yeah. All right, this is going to be interesting. It's it, uh, it's a four and a half, mate. Oh, it is a fucking four and a half. And I even asked my wife; she was asked probably a four and a half. I was like, I don't do halves, but I I, I might do a half. Day. It's, it's it is. a four and a half film. It really is. It's it's neat. Ne- it's near near perfect. It is it great. Is but it's a four and a half film, and mm-hmm. yes, I would recommend it to others. It's 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 so fun. there's there's nothing wrong with this film. I can't see why anyone would ever dislike this film. It's great. No, I'm going to begrudgingly give it a four, but it's a very, very (laughs) high four. Let's just put it that way. An extremely high four. But again, it's it's so easy to recommend. You don't have to be into sci-fi. You don't have to be into Star Trek. And again, especially nowadays, everyone's aware of fan, fan culture. This isn't a niche movie anymore at all. You, you know, even if you have no interest in you're aware of Comic-Con, you're aware of the whole Marvel thing, and everyone knows about the Star Trek, the original Star Trek cast, and their, their kind of, you know, kind of strange relationship. It's just common knowledge. It's everyday yeah. knowledge at this point. So, yeah, it's incredibly easy to recommend. It's a very high four star. And, yes, the good news is it totally holds up on just about every level. So, yes, uh, yeah, totally agree. Absolutely agree. <laughs> right. Uh so the only thing left to do today then is to find out what we're doing next week. So it's your choice next week, now, isn't it? Another one which I think falls into this four-stroke five-star category, where I, you know, I haven't watched it for a couple of years, but uh, Tombstone is one of my favorite westerns of all time. A film I absolutely adore. Again, another movie where you could argue that it has an almost perfect cast. Another movie which, you know, it's a good movie for sure, but what elevates it is the cast 100%. It's one of my favorite cast, casts of any movie alongside Galaxy Quest. So it actually has a lot in common in a, in a bizarre way, but uh, you've already pulled a face a little bit of this. You're not think, so fussed on Tombstone? I think we're going to be back to normal next week. <laughs> oh, <laughs> shit. I remember disliking it. You I've dis- only ever seen it once. Oh, but I, I, I'll give it a fair crack. I yeah, yeah. I, I thought this kind of fell into that same category of just being, if nothing else, super likable. I yeah. I don't think it's as kind of like faultless as Galaxy Quest, and I don't think it's quite as easy to recommend, but it's in the same ballpark. But I'll we'll find out next week. So definitely give it a crack. The only thing I can say, I remember it being super boring. So. Oh, dude, anything with Kurt Russell. And I think it might be... Like legitimately, Val Kilmer in that film is one of my favorite performances of all time. Look, I'm not of gonna, all time. I'm not going to shit on it until I rewatch it. But it feels like you're shit. It feels like you're preparing to shit on it. No, 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 I'm just saying what I remember. I remember it being you know, it, it's, it's very good that I get this warning because the last time this happened where you swept my legs from underneath me where I was convinced we were like, oh, we're going to be on the same page. And I had all these notes about basically just bumming the film for like an hour and a half and straight away you're like, ah, it's not for me, bro. And I just, I remember looking at my notes in despair. I was like, oh, shit. What the fuck are we going to do? I remember, because that was a Christmas vacation, wasn't it? Oh, I remember it was, yeah, it was, seeing your soul leave your body at that point. Just... Oh, dude, I was so convinced. I was like, at the vet, I was like, worst case scenario, he he likes it. That was like the worst case scenario in my head. It's like, oh, it's a three-star film, a strong three stars. When you came out the gate straight away that you didn't like it, I was like, for fuck's sake. So at least I'm mentally prepared for the possibility 
that you don't like Tombstone. But we'll fight. We'll all find yeah, out together yeah, next yeah, week. Yeah, we, yeah. we don't prepare ahead. We do our own personal preparation, and then we just fucking talk about it. And I find out live alongside everyone else that Rob hates a film that I love. So yes, please join us for Tombstone next week. And thank you very much for joining us for Galaxy Quest. And hopefully, I've sorted out the sound because it's a bit fucked last week. So uh, yeah, cheers, guys. Catch ya. Cheers, guys. Never surrender. I can't remember the rest of that fucking line. What was we, it? I, I, you can't do the quote and get it wrong, is it? Never give up, never surrender? Never give up, never surrender. I'm cutting out the rest of that and I'm just sticking with that. <laughs> no, no, the whole thing has to stay. Cheers, guys. <laughs> Bye. Oh, and before we forget, here is Rob with all the finer details. Got to get through those, dude. <laughs> yeah, so basically you can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at HeyYouGuys80s. We're also on email at HeyYouGuys80s at gmail.com. Please feel free to drop us any recommendations, any corrections or omissions we may have missed from any of the films that we've covered. Just get them in. And also, if you could, please leave us some five-star reviews. That would really help us. And we'd like to thank, as always, Darry Fletcher at Darry Doodles for the fantastic artwork that we're now producing. Thanks for that, mate. Cheers, Darry. Yeah. Uh, and thanks again for listening, and we will see you next week. Cheers. Bye. Are you good?